0: Inside Julia's Kitchen is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill. Employee-owned Bob's Red Mill offers organic, gluten-free, stone-ground products. Visit bobsredmill.com today.
1: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org.
0: Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Linda Novick O'Keefe, the founding Chief Executive Officer of Common Threads, a national food literacy program for children, which is also supported by the Foundation. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Linda about why it's vital to teach kids to cook. We'll get a mini report card on childhood obesity in America. And we'll also hear Linda's Julia moment. Stay tuned to learn all about our Julia moment. We'll be right back. In our first segment on Inside Julia's Kitchen, As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. So Julia once said, The more you know, the more you can create. There's no end to imagination in the kitchen. I think this fittingly applies to the importance of teaching children to cook. It's tough to eat really well if you don't know anything about cooking, especially if you don't have the money to shop and eat at the best places. And it's pretty hard to be healthy if you don't really understand what is healthy. So while Julia was passionate that everyone needs to acquire this knowledge, this was partly born out of the fact that she, too, was not taught as a child to cook or much about food, although she did have the advantage of coming from a comfortable family where fresh food was plentiful. The Foundation has been very pleased to support the work of Common Threads, which teaches food literacy and cooking to children, now in 12 cities and more than 750 schools and community centers across the country. It seems to us that they have tapped into a magic elixir of making learning about food fun while also empowering kids through education to change their habits those of their families for the better fun plus education exactly Julia's formula for success. I'm delighted to welcome their advocate in chief as I like to call her Linda Novak O'Keefe to tell us more about common threads work and what she's learned on her journey helping build the organization from the ground up. Welcome to the podcast Linda.
2: Thank you, Todd. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Well, I'm excited to get into this conversation and talk about, hopefully, how much progress we've made in Common Threads has made on, on childhood obesity, um, but also on on teaching and learning. So, But I, I think it's always helpful to kind of ground a conversation, particularly if you haven't heard about Common Threads or don't already know Linda, on who who she is and why she got involved with Common Threads, because I think the indirect lesson a backstory provides can be really valuable. So why don't we start there and why don't you tell us how you first got involved with Common Threads and and why?
2: Sure. Well, the idea that ultimately served as the catalyst for Common Threads was born out of a huge loss. Um, After the tragic events of 9-11, Art Smith and his husband, Um, artist Jesus Salguero, they wanted to do something, and they went with art boss at the time, Oprah Winfrey, to cook for families that had lost family members um, in the tragedy. And so soon these conversations about the power of connections that we make as we gather together to share a meal... Turned into bringing children together to teach them about food, the world, and really how our cultural differences can unite us. They saw food as a powerful vehicle for change, and I'll never forget the feeling that went through me when Art told me this idea. I was working at Shorebank, a community development bank at the time. I don't think I've ever felt so certain that I wanted to be part of something. Um, So when he told me this idea, um, I asked him, of course, being a banker for the business plan and articles of incorporation, and he's like, oh, honey, it's just an idea. Uh, (laughs) So I decided to write the business plan, and I filed for our articles of incorporation, and shortly after, um, we established Common Threads in my condo. <laughs> so,
0: so did you already have a personal relationship as a banker with Art Smith? How, how were you... Is that sort of the the extent of the relationship and your experience then in sort of the food world?
2: Well, so, so Art had actually um, purchased... Shiloh Baptist Missionary Church um, at the time, and it was in one of Shorebank's priority communities, so he was looking for a line of credit. Now, um, Shiloh Baptist Missionary Church had a long civil rights history. Mahalia Jackson had sung there, and um, and Martin Luther King had spoken there. Um, and so he came to me for a line of credit. We were introduced by my... Um, a woman um who's now my sister in law, um who uh Siobhan who actually was working for Oprah at the time as well. So we were brought together. Um, and I was truly moved um by his passion and what was really um gosh, my my dream on a platter, right? <laughs>
0: Well, why was that your dream on a platter? I don't think, I, well, I think it's, you know, um, worthy and admirable. I don't think it's everyone's dream that they would leave their job in banking and go work for a chef without a business plan. So so why was that your dream on a platter?
2: Well, I think that at the time I was finishing up grad school, I had gone back to grad school um Specifically for a degree in non for profit management. I knew I wanted to work in the non for profit space. Um, and at the time, I was finishing up school and starting to interview with other non for profit organizations. And so there was just this opportunity to create something so beautiful. Um, I love building things. And for me, that's it was this opportunity. It was really. A dream for me.
0: So, so Chef Art just sort of walked into the bank at just the right moment, where your mind was already changing to what am I going to do next, and what can I do that would be a great nonprofit.
2: Exactly. I guess as in um, in life, timing is everything, right?
0: <laughs> it certainly it certainly sounds like that. Lots lots of Julia parallels between discovering her passion and just this what, the lightning striking at the. The most random moment through unexpected connections. So, I thought maybe there's there's lots to say about what Common Threads is and does. But I thought one of the places to start is what I think is, which I assume came out of this uh, initial business plan and conversations, is that Common Threads has a rather, to me, unique knowledge about how to teach kids to cook and about nutrition and food. It's not just a straightforward like nutritionist lesson and you use world cultures, which I assume kind of also comes out of this global understanding of being founded out of a response to 9-11. But tell us more about why that decision and how you use world cultures as a, a lens to teach
2: kids about food. Sure. Well, there's such relevance in education and um, cooking and food really allows us such a beautiful and organic way to talk about everything from geographic regions, agriculture, culture, um, tradition, etiquette. Um, you know, in our classes, the children travel the world each week in our Cooking Skills and World Cuisine class. They get on a imaginary plane, and they travel to a different country, and they make a healthy, affordable meal that usually takes, on average, 20 to 30 minutes to make. They're making things like mango lassies and jerk spice tilapia, um, Greek chicken and homemade pita, Senegalese stews, and then at the very end... They say our creed, um, and they acknowledge that everyone all over the world and even in the room is different, but together they can work, learn, share, and of course, at the very end, eat. Um,
0: I see. So so, I think another thing, right, Common Threads focuses primarily on, on kids who live in economically disadvantaged areas. Is that right? Yes. And, and do, you, do you think there's an even greater importance to teach disadvantaged kids about food literacy than all kids? Or how do you kind of reconcile that unique focus in terms of its importance for the organization and for society?
2: Well, the social justice piece was always important from the very beginning. Um, and, I, and I think that it is so important um, to really ensure that healthy cooking, healthy eating, healthy living is a life choice and a human right. Um, You know, according to the CDC, one in three school-age children is obese, um, and, you know, childhood obesity disproportionately affects minority and low-income populations, Um, and this puts children at an increased of diet-related illness, and um, they're susceptible to hypertension, heart disease, and diabetes. And then that, in turn, obese kids, you know, they have greater risks um, of feelings of, of depression and loneliness, anger. They might be more likely to skip school and drop out later. Um, you know, at, Good nutrition is associated with higher academic achievement. Healthy students are less likely to drop out than their obese peers. Um, You know, an estimated 13 million children in the United States risk hunger. The nutrition crisis is linked to long-term physical, emotional, societal, and economic um, well-being of those that it affects in their communities.
0: Yeah, so I think going back to, because I I feel like, well, I certainly believe in social justice. It's often kind of a, a loaded term that gets maybe, um, put in a do-gooder corner rather than necessarily something that should be more universal than it is, and, and I think you were just describing all the reasons why, you know, teaching underprivileged children matters. But I wanted to connect that up to how it benefits everybody, right? Because you're looking at how do we make equality in society better through what you eat and how you cook it, right? But I think if you talk more about the outcomes of why, by targeting this, everybody benefits.
2: Sure. Well, we know that after going through our program, kids are more likely to like vegetables. (laughs) Um, They're eating more vegetables after going through our programs. Um, They're cooking more at home. You know, we are really improving life outcomes. Um, And for us, it's really important. You know, we know that um, when it comes to social determinants of health, zip codes matter, so we believe in pouring resources into distressed communities, into and really trying to ensure that our high-quality programs are available um, to the children of families that, that need it. Um,
0: and, and does that mean that you have found that with more affluent kids, the, 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 no, the access to vegetables, the desire to eat them, and the knowledge about what to do with them it, it is more prevalent when you go up the, the economic spectrum?
2: I can't comment on that just because the uh, since inception, we have truly i believe that everyone would benefit from our programs. Um, and I think that uh, that our pro i wish our programs could be available to everyone, however, we've mm-hmm. chosen to really. Focus on providing um, our programs to schools where at least eighty percent of those kiddos participate in the free or reduced school lunch program.
0: And, and is that kind of just from a low hanging fruit, where where you were seeing that there was just an obvious need in that arena, and when you were looking at biting off what is a tremendous national problem, that was the best place to start.
2: Exactly. Um, you know, when we go into a community, we look at. Um, obesity levels, education levels, access um, to grocery stores. So we—that's how we try to ensure that we are going where we're needed most.
0: I, I was hoping could we go back to the social justice component because I think that that that's also a really interesting sort of. Um, you know, not on the nose outcome or goal of the programs. Because I think from what I understand, the goal of the programs is quite specific to helping kids in these communities just be healthier and enjoy cooking and food in a more well-rounded way. But clearly you mentioned that mission underpinning the program. I think it's helpful because I don't think a lot, you know, people in the field think about this a lot, either in certain food fields or food policy fields or even in non-food fields with like urban development or community development. But I don't think everybody thinks about the connection between food access and social justice. They might seem quite different areas. So could you talk about that a little bit about, you know, why is food access a social justice issue?
2: Sure. Well, so many in so many of the communities and cities that we work in, um, which are for the most part, urban cities like Chicago, Los Angeles, um uh, Miami uh, here and even here in Austin, there so many of our families live more than five miles away from a grocery store so which makes it they have to travel by several bus lines um, some, you know, need to rely on convenience stores, um, corner liquor stores, to be able to purchase food items. Um, and there certainly, some of those stores are, there's more of a plethora of options um, that are probably packaged and processed, not, certainly not fresh ingredients, so access really um, you know really is a challenge for a lot of these families um so it's really you know there's a lot there are certainly a lot of organizations that are working towards closing that gap um, especially during summer months when hunger is at its peak um, but that's where it's kind of like if you You know, even if you don't know, if if you've never seen some of these vegetables when some of the mobile markets come in um, and you don't know what it is or how to prepare it, the likelihood of eating it is pretty slim. Um, So, you know, we're we're on a third generation of non-cookers. People don't know how to cook or shop on a budget. um, And that's really where an organization like us comes in. I thought that
0: was interesting that you said in the summer months when hunger is worsened, and I have a guess as to why, but it, it's a little bit counterintuitive because summer is when at least fresh food is is most plentiful. W- why is the summer month worse for for disadvantaged communities in terms of hunger?
2: Sure. Well, um, so many of the kids that we're working with um, in during the summer months—I mean, they're they're reliant upon. Um, the school breakfast and lunch program, right? So when school closes down, their access to their free breakfast and lunch goes away. Um, and you know, summer's a time when not just hunger is at its peak, but so is youth-related crime and violence. Um, it's it's um, it's certainly a time when. So many communities could really benefit from um, from high quality programs as well as access um, to healthy meals.
0: So, Linda, you mentioned about third generation non-cookers, which is, I think, kind of a startling figure. And w- where do you think that's coming from? Is that true across the board? Is it more true of disadvantaged families? What? Tell us more about that, rather. Alarming way of <laughs> putting a change in society.
2: Currently, so many parents um, are working several jobs, right? And schools have somewhat glossed over um, home ec now, <laughs> it doesn't exist. Mm. So, for so many different reasons, um, we've gotten away from cooking real food. Um, and I think also there's this myth that cooking healthy food is really expensive and not accessible. And I think that that's where an organization like ours really does step in. Because we know that cooking can be such Fun um, and it can be possible for families to do on a budget. You know, we have parent workshops and grocery shopping tours. We teach families to meal plan, Um, and we have eight on our. uh, We have a handbook with eight weeks of recipes broken down um, on a budget for families to be able to follow, where they can really cook the world um, and on a budget.
0: Got it. Well, that, that's actually really great for what we're going to pick up on after the break is we'll talk a little bit more about since this conversation began and since Common Threads has, has begun in, in the wake of 9-11, some, golly, 15 years more plus later, how we're doing. We'll be right back to talk to Linda Moore about how we're doing as a nation on eating a lot better. Stay tuned. The other day, I decided to change up my breakfast routine, dig into some Bob's Red Mill fruit and seed, European-style muesli. I noticed how balanced each bite was between oaty goodness, naturally sweet dried fruit, crunchy seeds. Turning my eyes to the package yielded confirmation that the main ingredients are indeed whole grains, nuts, dried fruit, and seeds, rather than anything I couldn't pronounce. That just makes all the difference in starting my day off right. Visit bobsredmill.com today, use the discount code Kitchen, all one word in all caps, for valuable savings on Bob's Red Mill products like Buseley. So, it seems like the American public has, <laughs> to, to quote uh, a popular expression, got woke, that our lax eating habits, fast food, and supersized portions have been slowly killing us. And it also seems like a large number of organizations like Common Threads have, have risen up to, to try to tackle the challenge, but it also seems like at the same time that we've still got a long way to go. And uh, Lisa, Linda was just talking about third-generation non-cookers and that being kind of part of the epidemic. Um, so, so, Linda, with your experience so far, I'm sort of not asking you to speak you know, broadly beyond it, but just from the Common Threads point of view and, and some sort of 15 years ago since your mission began, what do you think are, are, or can you point to three things that have really changed for the better in terms of kids', kids health or knowledge about food and cooking?
2: Sure. Well, I think awareness is the is the first thing. I think First Lady Michelle Obama really brought incredible attention to children's health. She certainly kickstarted a movement. Um, There are more gardens, more organizations like ours doing work in the nutrition and school lunch space. School districts have health and wellness policies and, you know, many funders are even requiring youth development grantees to address health and wellness as part of large investments. Um, And you also have community-based organizations proactively embedding wellness components into um, into their programs. I'm seeing so many more cross-sector partnerships gel um, around community needs. Um, seeing you're seeing school districts, hospitals, universities, um, medical schools all coming together. You know, with this lens on equity and together putting resources into distressed communities. Um, I think there's been an investment in SNAP education, right? Um, not just um, not just SNAP, but the actual education piece, and um, we're seeing that um, because of SNAP-Ed funding, more organizations are actually able to research um, their, their participants and are seeing high incidence of diabetes and heart disease, so... Um,
0: I was can I stop you there for one second you were using some really good nonprofit speak and at least at one section of my my career, I did some community development so two things I don't know what cross sector means I, I I can guess, but why don't you tell us what cross sector means and just remind our listeners what snap refers to as well?
2: Sure so snap is what was formerly um, the federal food stamp program so When I um, when I uh, when I talked specifically earlier about um, cross sector partnerships, so for example, um, we're seeing we're actually seeing more hospitals and academic universities wanting to partner, um, you know, with this. uh, We have a new partnership with the Osher. With Osher the, at Northwestern, um, where we have this program, Cooking Up Health, and it's docs and kids in the kitchen, and um, we have together been teaching medical school students about nutrition through the lens of culinary medicine, community health, and hands-on cooking. So, and then the medical students then go in to Chicago public schools and deliver. Um, the healthy habit messages to the kids. Um, so you know, and then
0: so cross sector kind of means using using what might be a different sort of group or body or industry to partner with to deliver a message in kind of a unique way. Like you wouldn't expect medical students to be the one teaching cooking tips or
2: exactly. and it's and it's getting you know folks from the entire community involved. When we go into a community, we, you know, want to be bringing our preventative health care programs, not just to the school districts, but to the park districts. Um, And we want to create partnerships with the children's hospitals and the medical schools so we can really engage the entire community um, around, you know, a shared outcome to really get to increased impact.
0: I see. So that's kind of moving toward my next question, which are, it sounds like the big blanket awareness and the beginning of integration in different public programs in terms of health and wellness and particularly kids, food um, education is, is, is is a positive outcome of the last uh, decade plus. But obviously we talked about there's, there's still an obesity at, Epidemic, as you said, one in three kids being classified by the CDC is at. So, what would you say are the three biggest challenges that you're that you common threads and the the nation is still facing in terms of um, these issues?
2: Sure. Well, we spoke a little bit about access earlier, right? It still remains a real issue, not just in urban communities where we're focused, but also in rural communities. Um, you know, and then it's this idea of this third generation of non-cookers. People don't know how to cook or how to shop on a budget.
0: Well, and that's back to both of our mutual missions to, you know, and, and it's, it's nice to hear that what we're doing at the foundation is is critically important and still there, there's a need for it, that, that as much as we talk about it every day, all day long, that uh, teaching people more about cooking and eating and where food comes from and how to make it is still vitally important.
2: Absolutely.
0: So, Linda, that's really interesting what you said is I think we need to really reframe the conversation about teaching people in an ongoing way because we're we're never really done. What used to be an ongoing generation-to-generation generation education process, as you say, with third-generation non-cookers disappearing, has really created this gap and that we need to think about we're never going to be done with this process, that actually we need to re-get people to be Doing an ongoing education process.
2: Absolutely, I agree. You know, health is a lifestyle, um, and it's important to practice healthy habits and choices on a regular basis. <laughs> we, it, 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 as you said, it's, it's, it's not something that you. Um, learn and you're done. It's something that requires a lot of practice and, and continued inspiration, right, for all of us.
0: So would you say that's one of the top three things after, you know, second after access is really this continued practice that we have to really get into and, and reinvigorate and then commit to keep going?
1: Well,
2: I thought that the third one was actually how to shop on a budget, and that can be the fourth. <laughs> okay, sure.
0: <laughs> and, well, that sort of kind of falls into it as part of the practice, is you're saying that a lot of people don't know how to shop on a budget?
2: No, no, it's true. Especially, um, especially you know, the average American doesn't have... Four hundred dollars set aside for an emergency, and you know SNAP benefits um, average about families are receiving about one hundred and twenty-seven dollars a month um, for for groceries. So our organization is really working um, diligently to be able to teach our families how not only how to make better choices. But how to make them on a limited budget, and, wow, and to your point about you know continuing, we're also trying to really focus on our healthy teacher trainings. Um, so training our teachers um, as well, serve, as well as community uh, work, people that are working at other community-based organizations on how to um, provide our education programs so they can continue to serve families and um, have more of a lasting, sustainable improvement over time.
0: And do you, do you think this training of teachers is that, are teachers hungry for it because these programs like HOMAC or other activities have been cut from a lot of public school budgets?
2: You know, I believe that... School culture of health is so important, and our teachers are on the front lines of that. Um, and they really set the vibe for their classroom and the kids. If they are drinking a big gulp, mm-hmm. um, the kids are certainly going to take notice. Um, so with, uh, with regard to We've been providing continuing education credits for our teachers for going through the program um, as well as then training them on how to deliver small bites and are constantly developing um, uh, supports um, for our curriculum to provide to them um, just to make their life easier. Teachers are so over-inundated right now, Um, so we're trying to do what we can to make it easy and fun for them to um, keep their classrooms healthy um, and to be positive role models for the kids and champions of health.
0: I think that's such an important cultural aspect, too, that that how teachers you know, sort of set the stage in their classroom and the example they show, I think people forget how how much, especially to younger children, teachers, they pay a lot of attention to who their teachers are, what their teachers wear, how they act and behave. And I think that gets forgotten about a lot of time that it makes a huge impression on kids. Um, And the more that everybody can be in that Uh, game together, you know, the better it'll come across to the kids, the more they'll observe it, and it can't hurt to have healthier teachers either.
2: No, absolutely, especially given some of the school, uh, our school districts are some of the largest employers, right? Um, Health matters,
0: I think that, that that's, that's a message that everyone can agree on. So tell me, what's next for Common Threads other than first national and then global full domination?
2: I love that, global domination. Well, of course, continuous learning and improvement. Um, you know, we're really trying to understand what it means to go deeper in our communities. Um, I think I mentioned to you we're doing some really interesting work in the medical space in addition to that partnership that I talked about with um, Northwestern and Osher. um, We have a really interesting uh, pilot happening with Baptist Health in South Florida where we're teaching patients with hypertension, high cholesterol, and type 2 diabetes our culinary program. And we're excited about looking at health outcomes. We've got some killer foodie events coming up to raise money for the organization Um, in Washington, D.C. We've curated an incredible group of lady chefs um, for an event on May 16th um, in Washington, D.C. And on... We have a, another terrific event in October in Chicago to raise funds for the organization, and we're actually gearing up for our 15th year anniversary, which is wow. unbelievable.
0: <laughs> and will there be a big party somewhere, or is it going to be a, a fundraiser, or is that still in the works?
2: That is still in the works. We currently, um, uh, we currently have are starting to, uh, we're starting to have conversations and are cooking up some ideas on, um, how we plan to, uh, celebrate that big milestone. I'll be well, sure to that, keep you posted.
0: Great. With that in mind, well, my, my last thought before we take a break and then come back for your Julia moment, which I'm excited to hear what you're going to say, um, is, um, what do you think others, either other people or other organizations, can kind of learn from from Common Thread's example? You've been talking about health matters, but sort of maybe more specifically just what you've taken away from the specific programs that you guys have run.
2: Sure. You know, we have really made evaluation um, a priority since the very beginning of common threads. We've always measured what we do and the effects. And we've always taken that data and have tried to learn from it to improve. So, you know, that's Essentially, it's, it's, it's those numbers that told us that we had to start engaging parents. And so we added family cooking classes. Um, and, um, you know, I think that it's so important to continue to evolve in a way while you're really listening to the individuals that you're trying to help. Um, so you can really meet them where they are um, and really try to do what you can to make a difference um, and make that difference more meaningful.
0: Well, I think that ha- that's so great for this podcast because it's got a great Julia parallel. She was all about constant self-improvement and feedback and, and learning, and I think that that's Terrific that you know that's um, maybe in a more businessy way. Common Threads has taken that on and really, but you found that not just it, it's not just about accountability, but it's actually making what you do more holistic and and more effective. So we're gonna take a break, and when we come back, Linda's gonna reveal her personal Julia moment. We'll be right back.
3: Hey, thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. This is Katie, HRN Executive Director, and I'm so excited to share with you our coverage from the Charleston Wine and Food Festival.
1: We are here live today at Charleston Wine and Food.
3: Join us as we talk all things food.
1: Come to Charleston, eat some
3: seafood. Eat all of the seafood. Chicken fried chicken with chorizo steak and
2: salsa verde mashed potatoes.
3: So quintessentially like Southern fare at its finest and have important conversations.
2: We're also talking about professional women in restaurants and how underrepresented they are. People of color in restaurants and how they're not talked about.
3: We get real with Food Network's Manit Chohan. Balance is BS. <laughs> uh, I, I was, yeah, I was told that uh, I wasn't going to be bleeped out and find out about raising sugarcane with Chef Sean Brock.
2: It's like being Indiana Jones or something. You never
1: know what you're gonna find.
3: You'll come away inspired by the power of food and the food scene in Charleston. Here's Dr. Jessica B. Harris.
1: Food is constantly in flux. Food is always moving. Food is the only real lingua
2: franca that we have that allows us to connect with other folks.
3: So tune in to Heritage Radio Network on tour at heritageradionetwork.org or wherever you get your
0: podcasts.
2: You can't go wrong. When you flip anything, you really,
0: you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't,
2: I didn't have the courage to do it. The way I should have, but you can always pick it up. And if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see?
0: From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. This is when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she inspired them in their career. All right, Linda, what's your Julia moment?
2: Hmm. I have so many, as I know everybody does, but um, here's my latest one. So. My husband and I, we went to our dear friend's house um, just a few weeks ago for what he said was going to be a simple cassoulet dinner, um, and the night was all Julia. It was her recipe for gourgères and her cassoulet recipe. Um, we ate country bread, part buckwheat and part whole wheat, and, and, of course, um our hostess made Julia's Tarte Pomme. And there was certainly a healthy amount of uh, French, Spanish, and Italian red wine as well. And, um, and before we ate, there was, in perfect Julia fashion, the most beautiful toast. Our hosts had explained that leftovers from past meals that we had all shared together with him and his wife had been the actual ingredients in this cassoulet. So the lamb, for example, that we had had with him months before um, in a Moroccan tagine um, and the breadcrumbs from a loaf of bread that they had broken weeks before with another couple. I mean, I just remember, I I think I lost part of the toast dear, due to hearing my own heart just thump. Um, So you, you remember that moment when... When in that in the movie Julia and Julia, when um, Paul on Valentine's Day gives that toast to her, and uh, she taps her heart, it was one of um, those moments for me. So I think that there's just no greater gift to have someone cook for you so thoughtfully and carefully. Um, mm. Julia inspired me when I was 10 years old, and she continues to do so now in my career. It's, it's that, that heart-thumping moment, right, of just knowing that what I'm part of with Common Threads and all of my colleagues that were teaching children that cooking is just a beautiful way to take care of themselves and those they love, just feel like that idea um, has Julia all over it.
0: I agree. I think that's a great kind of message is that the gift of cooking and I think chefs say it all the time, that for them, it's as much about sharing their feelings and love and the importance to them of what they're cooking with other people than it is about the dishes. And I think that that's a great example of sort of bringing all of those things together. So thanks so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it.
2: Thank you, Todd. I appreciate you having me.
0: So thanks everyone for listening. Let us know what you think about today's show. Reach us via email or even send us a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org. Like us on Facebook, search at Julia Child, or you can follow us on Twitter. Julia Child, J-C-F is our handle. My handle's at T Shulkin, T-S-C-H-U-L-K-I-N. And we're on Instagram, search Julia Child Foundation all one word. If you want to learn more about Common Threads and its programs, you can go to commonthreads.org, and I'm sure they have information on their um, Washington, D.C. event in May and the upcoming one in Chicago on the website. And if you want to even be more on top of things, you can follow them on social media. Their handle is at common double underscore threads, note the double underscore, and they are on Facebook at cthreads.com. Thanks to WGBH for the Joy of Child audio clip from The front Chef. And thanks to my co-producer at the foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, David Tadashore Our theme song is New French Horn" by Novi Valtorni. So that's a wrap for season one. Feels like we're off to a great start, but let us know what you think. Please give us a review. That really helps new listeners discover us. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss our season two return. That episode drops Thursday, May 10th. If you're a really big fan, you might have caught that's one day later than usual. And that's because we have a brand new on-air time slot for season two. We'll be moving to Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. So downloads will be available a day later than you might have been used to. And while we're on hiatus, I have a great idea. Catch up on any and all of the episodes you might have missed or listen to your favorite all over again. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next season on Inside Julia's Kitchen.